because God has commanded to it, and we know that it's not. And so what he does is he, God gives him the ability to zero in on those attack points. For example, you just completed a book called Creational Marriage. Uh, you think marriage is under attack? This is an outstanding book. An outstanding book. Let me give you one quotation from it. He said, at every wedding, we are to, we are witnessing a world historical event. Marriage is a communion, a covenant, a companionship, a community, and the an, an erratical aspect of the cosmology. <laughs> Boy, and he goes on from there. And so, but there are other things, and he, he writes these things. So, so, Nehemiah's answer to the, well, they're coming up against this small size was, okay, we recognize that. So what we do, Nehemiah said, pray and set watch. And this is what God has done with him. God is calling him, has called him to be a watchman in building and rebuilding the walls of the word of God. So, will you welcome with me, please, he who comes, blessed of the Lord, Brother Andrew Sandman, please. I've been privileged to know some mighty men of God in my time, and that's one of the mightiest, Jack Carter. And over the years, I've concluded that the reason for that, the principal reason for that, is because he's a mighty man of prayer. That's the main reason. Listen, please, to this series of biblical statements, and I'd like you to note the thematic thread that binds them all together. First, First Chronicles 16, 11. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face evermore. Psalm 55, 17, evening and morning and at noon I will pray and cry aloud and he shall hear my voice. Luke 18, 1, then he, Jesus, spoke a parable to them that men ought, always ought to pray and not lose heart. And then Ephesians 6, 18, praying always, always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And then finally, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, most succinct of all, pray without ceasing. By the way, I do preach occasionally, only occasionally holding a microphone, and I, I tend to be very dangerous when I get into the microphone. No writer in the history of the church wrote more or more broadly about prayer than E.M. Bounds. 
he wrote this memorable line. Most, quote, most and best of all, faith thrives in an atmosphere of prayer. That's my topic this morning, living in an atmosphere of prayer. And incidentally, I'm so glad that there are so many young people here. If you're 10 years old here or younger, raise your hand. 10 years old or younger, don't be shy, raise your hand. Okay? Now, 16 or younger, raise your hand. This message is for you. You will be the leaders of this church one day, many of you. Each of us carries with us a particular predominant atmosphere of living. This atmosphere tends to follow us wherever we go, and those closest to us kind of know what that atmosphere is. Now, I'm not talking about a worldview, but rather a personality's propensity toward life. For some, it's an atmosphere of pessimism. I don't know how many of you remember the comic strip, The Born Loser, or perhaps even comic strips at all. They were in almost every newspaper in the country. There are newspapers closing like every month. There are very few comparatively newspapers left in the country. But every day there would be black and white comic strips, and on Sunday the colorized versions. One of the most popular was the born loser, who always seemed to be suffering misfortunes. One of the favorite columns of his, I recall, had a cloud of rain following him wherever he went throughout the day. An optimist, he was not. We've all met people who live in an atmosphere of pessimism. They never met any bad news they didn't like. <laughs> and if you try to snap them out of it with some good news, they always find a way to dampen the spirit. You say, I heard you got a raise at work. Well, you know, my boss doesn't like me, so it probably won't last. <laughs> Others live in an atmosphere of enthusiasm. Every day is a new adventure. When they go to bed at night, they're excited about waking up because they have great plans for the next day. It's fun to be around those people. In contrast, others live in an atmosphere of aimlessness. You know what I mean? Aimlessness. They just seem to drift along in life. They're not active. They're always passive. They don't create their life. Life creates them. Still others live in an atmosphere of joy. That was my late mother. I probably can count on my hands the times I saw her unhappy. No matter what the circumstance, she was always able to find joy. Now, the Bible teaches that Christians should live in an atmosphere of prayer. It's a sweet-smelling odor that should accompany us wherever we go. That's actually a, a biblical metaphor for prayer. The Bible says the prayers of the saints are like sweet-smelling incense that comes up to God. And that appealing aroma of prayer should travel with us at all times. Now, if you think about it, most commands in the Bible are situationally dependent. For example, the Bible commands that if our enemy is hungry or thirsty, we should feed him, give him to drink. But most of us aren't in such close proximity to our enemies that we have much of an opportunity to obey that command. We obey it when the situation presents itself, which is rare. Similarly, think of commands like this, husbands, love your wives, that too is situationally dependent. Why? Because there are many Christian men who aren't 
husbands or aren't yet husbands. But hear me well. The commands like those that we read to pray always, everywhere, are not situationally dependent. They apply to all Christians everywhere at all times. They apply to Christian children, teenagers, youth, middle-aged, the elderly. They apply to men and women. They apply to rich Christians and poor Christians and middle-class uh, Christians. They apply to Christians in Western societies as well as those in Africa and Asia. There's no time and no situation or no condition under which these texts don't apply to Christians. In other words, we are called to be praying all the time. Now, this fact brings up an interesting question and our first point. How in the world can we pray all the time? Now, the Bible obviously can't mean we do nothing else but pray. We're commanded to love God and our neighbor. We're commanded to live holy lives. We're commanded to influence our world for Jesus Christ and his kingdom. We're commanded to be faithful to our family and church and so on. So obviously, we're to do more than pray. So, so how can we be praying everywhere and all the time? Well, here's some language that will help us to understand. Think about the difference between the words continuously and continually. Subtle but important difference. Continuously means an action without interruption. Continually means a repetitive action. Water cascades over Niagara Falls continuously. It flows uninterrupted. But the second hand of an analog clock, anybody here remember analog clocks? Remember those? Analog? The second hand of an analog clock ticks continually. It's not one uninterrupted tick, but 60 repeated ticks a minute. It doesn't tick continuously, but it does tick continually. See the difference? When the Bible says we should pray, it means we should pray continually. Now, obviously, our prayer must be interrupted when we speak to others, often while we're working, when we're enjoying time with our family and friends. But even during those times, we should be praying continually. While the Bible doesn't teach that we must do nothing but pray, it does teach we should be praying all the time, continually. Second, this means we'll be praying many times a day, perhaps hundreds of times. And since a day consists of only 24 hours, only 15 or 16 of which we're generally conscious, most of those prayers can't be long. In fact, most of our prayers will be very short. If you believe that you can pray only long prayers, you can't be praying continually. Because most of the time, you don't have time to pray long prayers during the day. And don't try it with your automobile, and certainly not with your eyes open while you're driving. The mighty 19th century Anglican preacher, J.C. Ryle, put it this way. Beautiful citation. He said this. He, speaking of Paul, did not mean that men should be always on their knees. But he did mean that our prayers should be like the continual burnt offering. Referring, of course, to the Old Testament sacrificial offering. A thing steadily preserved every day. 
that it should be like seed time and harvest and summer and winter, a thing that should unceasingly come round at regular seasons, that it should be like the fire on the altar, not always consuming sacrifices, but never completely going out. Never forget that you may tie together morning and evening devotions by an endless chain of short ejaculatory prayers throughout the day. Even in company or business or in the very streets, you may be silently sending up little winged messengers to God. I love that phrase. If you take nothing out of this sermon, remember that memorable phrase, little winged messengers. It describes how we are to pray continually throughout the day. If somebody comes to me for advice, I don't just assume that I'm very spiritual, I'm very smart, and can instantaneously shower them with my vast reservoir of wisdom. How wrong that would be. No. If I'm right, I silently cry out to God. Maybe the prayer is this short, this short. Lord, I need your wisdom right now. And somebody says, well, that's not a very impressive prayer. It doesn't have to be an impressive prayer. It has to be a heartfelt, faith-filled prayer. I encounter congested road conditions, know there's an increased chance of traffic accidents, and I say, Lord, please keep me or keep us safe. We pray continually, hundreds of times throughout the day, launching little winged messengers up to the heavenly throne. This leads to a third truth about living in an atmosphere of prayer. If we're praying always, continually, we must be praying about many minor, mundane matters. I like that alliteration. I was, sounded like a good Baptist there, wasn't I? Three M's. You see, most of our life doesn't consist of crises or other momentous events. Most of our life is just mundane, and that's a good thing, because our human frame couldn't endure constant crises. You might have noticed, however, that the uh, 24-7 news cycle is heavily invested in manufacturing crises, almost all of them negative, to keep readers and listeners in a high state of anxiety. I'm looking at you, CNN, and yes, you, Fox News. Always keep them coming back to websites, Twitter, TV, to get their anxiety fix. You ever notice that even when there's good news, the headline goes something like this? The number of COVID cases in the U.S. has drastically dropped, but health professionals are worried that another wave is on the way. (laughs) You can't simply have good news. Even the good news must always be tinged with potential bad news. A new crisis is always just around the corner. Now, this is not part of the Christian worldview, to put it mildly. There are, of course, crises in the world. And they're under God's providential care, but most of our life is not a crisis, nor do we face many momentous events in our lifetime. Acute illnesses, great financial reversal, war, death. Thank the Lord, even in a fallen world, actual crises don't come around very often. But if this is the case, and if we must be continually praying throughout the day, we'll be praying mostly for comparatively minor matters. I mean, if we really are praying continually. Now, if we're among those Christians who specialize only in crisis praying, you know what I mean, crisis praying? Oh, no, it's so bad now, we're going to have to resort to prayer. 
That is, praying only when massive, momentous issues come up. We won't be praying very much because they don't come up that often. So when the Bible commands we pray always, it must mean that we're praying about lots of comparatively minor matters throughout the day. This means that we are praying for parking spaces and for a quick automobile repair and for healing for a Christian friend who's gotten the flu or a job or a raise at work or a delightful time with family over the holidays, for a clear mind when taking a test in school, uh, wisdom when buying an appliance, and so on. And if our attitude is that we shouldn't trouble God with all of these minor matters as though it would distract him, as though he's too busy doing other things, that he would be annoyed by such mundane requests, we're actually saying God isn't interested in the smallest details of our lives. But the God who counts every hair on our heads, and in Bray Henson's case, it doesn't take very long, <laughs> who sees every sparrow that falls, cares about every aspect of our life, even the smallest, even the most insignificant, to say that he doesn't care about these seemingly insignificant matters is to say that he is not a caring God, which, come to think of it, is really a blasphemous thought. Therefore, these hundreds of winged messengers a day should be about everything. And by everything, that's what I mean. Thinking and talking and eating and exercising and traveling and sleeping, uh, loving, and yes, even sleeping. We're not conscious when we sleep, but the Holy Spirit is always conscious. And he will pray to the Father on our behalf when we are asleep. I don't ever, try never, to go to sleep at night, ever, without mentioning to the Holy Spirit, please pray, answer the prayers, convey to the Father the matters I've prayed about. I'd urge you every night before you go to sleep, ask the Holy Spirit who resides within you to be praying to the Father throughout the night all the requests you've mentioned throughout the day. And since he prays infallibly while we pray fallibly, we can assure and assume he'll pray better than we will. I love Romans 8, 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. And isn't that the truth? <laughs> Somebody asked me to pray about something. I'll say, Lord, I, I just, I'm not sure what to pray. It's not a matter of right or wrong. It's, I don't know what the best course of action is. I don't know how I ought to pray. The Holy Spirit says, but you see, I do. But the Spirit himself makes intercession with, for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. We can't convey it. The Holy Spirit knows how to convey it to the Father. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. That is, God the Father knows what the Spirit is thinking because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Think of this. Have the Holy Spirit pray because the Holy Spirit always prays according to God's will. It's entirely right to pray big, bold, faith-drenched prayers. It's equally right to pray many small prayers. And I would urge you 
to start doing that. Fourth, if we live in an atmosphere of prayer, we live in consistent, conscious communion with God. Now, we know that God is omnipresent, that is, he's everywhere, but we're not often conscious of that fact. We think about it from time to time. We know that we can't hide from God, and if we're believers, we wouldn't want to hide from God. (laughs) We know that God sees and hears everything, but most of the day, I'm going to suggest, we're not really conscious of this truth because we're not thinking about it. But we are if we're continually praying, (laughs) Why? Because prayer invokes God, and when we pray this way, we intuitively know he's not far away. The Bible tells us he is not far away from any one of us. Incidentally, that's also true of unbelievers. They're there. He's there, ready for them to cry out. He's certainly not far away from his own people. By the power of his spirit, he lives within us. This idea should rudely banish from our mind the conception lots of people have of God as being far, far away in outer space somewhere, pitched somewhere between Mars and Jupiter, looking at us through his long-range cosmic telescope, as it were. What a silly idea. God is here. Now. Right now. He's, He's here. He's here. He surrounds us. He provides for us. If we're Christians, his spirit is within us. And when we live in an atmosphere of prayer, we're consistently conscious of this fact. J.I. Packer once wrote that every renewing reformation began with a deep sense of the presence of God. I think that's right. God doesn't meet us only at church. He goes with his people everywhere. When we're continually in prayer, we know that God is always at hand. Remember that. God is always at hand. It is true that God sometimes intentionally hides himself from his people, but this is almost always a consequence of their disobedience. If we hold unconfessed sin in our heart, our consciousness of God's presence will become dim. He resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble, James tells us. But for those who live in obedience, constantly confessing their sins, God is right with them and lives within them all the time. This consciousness of God's presence that we experience in continual prayer also means we'll generally be resistant to the temptations of the devil. We'll be less vulnerable to the seduction of our secular and neo-pagan age. Now, because we're surrounded by such depravity and rebellion, it's very easy to develop lax attitudes toward the evils of our age because we see them so much. We become habituated to them. We can be tempted with the notion that the LGBTQI++ agenda, yes, may be sinful, but we just need to get used to it, accept that it's normal. Now, that is a false and sinful idea. And it's one we'll tend to resist if we live in constant God consciousness. If we're living in God's God consciousness all the time, we're conscious of his holiness. And there when we see depravity, it's kind of, we react against it. We don't say, yeah, yeah, that's just the way it is. 
will equally resist the popular idea that the state is our great provider and caretaker. And if there are any social problems, the best solution is political action. This idea is flatly contra-biblical. There's always a great provider man looks to, and if it's not God, men will vest their faith in the omnicompetent state. That is a false faith, a false confidence. Our provider is the triune God. Never forget that. If we're living in constant consciousness of God, if we're living in an atmosphere of prayer, we won't be seduced by that idea. Our God is always at hand, and he alone will provide for and protect his people. Fifth, to live in an atmosphere of uh, faith means we persevere in prayer because not all of our prayers can be new prayers. In the parable, the first verse of which we read earlier, Jesus said not just that men must always pray, but that they also must not faint or lose heart. We must persevere. Jesus there tells the parable, the story about an aggrieved widow seeking justice from a non-righteous judge. The judge couldn't care less about this woman's plight, but she pestered him so much that he finally capitulated. She wearied him. Jesus' point is that we should weary God. Not that God actually becomes weary with us as children, but it will seem as though we weary him so much. Lord, I prayed so much you must have gotten tired of it. That kind of persevering prayer. Jesus told a similar parable about a man who comes late at night to his friend asking for help since visitors had arrived very late at his house in the evening. You know the story, most of you. His friend repels him by saying it's so late, he's already in bed. Go away. But the man keeps right on knocking, and his friend finally responds because he refuses to give up. The point of both parables is the same. God answers the prayers of those who persevere. Now, why doesn't God answer all of our prayers immediately? That's a fair question. Why not? He could. Why does he sometimes demand perseverance? Well, because often our prayers are pretty superficial. We're not particularly urgent in our requests. They're more of an Amazon wish list. (laughs) But God isn't interested in simply granting our wish list. He's interested in answering prayer. And prayer is deeply felt and intense. Perseverance demonstrates our sincerity. Perseverance is a refusal to take no for an answer. Now here's important to point out briefly a couple of erroneous theological ideas about prayer. The first is that God always answers prayer and his answer is either yes, no, or wait a while. That's a very like pious answer, and that's not biblical. In the Bible, answer prayer means that God does exactly what we've asked him to do. Now, if we pray for healing, and the person for whom we're praying isn't healed, God did not answer that prayer. It was not a case of God's answering the prayer, but giving us something we didn't ask for. I repeat, in the Bible, when God answers prayer, he does what we request. All the saints of the Bible would have said that. When God answers prayer, that means he does what I was praying for. The Bible doesn't promise that God will answer every prayer. But let's not pretend that when he doesn't, it really is an answer in disguise. Well, I prayed and didn't get anything, but I guess that really was an answer. No, God, for whatever reason, didn't answer that prayer. You need to come to terms with that. Not all prayers are answered, and the Bible gives us a number of reasons why that I won't go into. Next. 
Some Christians refuse to persevere because they assume that unanswered prayer is always in the decreed, predestined will of God. It goes something like this. I prayed for God to heal my badly injured daughter, but he didn't heal her within two or three days. Therefore, I'm sure it's God's will not to heal her, but for her to suffer and to grow in him by suffering. Now, this is a pious-sounding phrase that actually reflects slander or laziness. First, it's slanderous but, uh, of God, slanders God, because it assumes God must answer on our time. And second, we don't want to go through all the hard work of persevering in prayer. So we blame God's eternal decree or his secret will. Unfortunately, theological schools that have a high view of God's sovereignty, predestination, and election, and I'm a part of that school, tend to have a very mediocre view of prayer. The Bible certainly does teach that God is sovereign, that he predestines, and that he elects. And you'd think the people who hold these views so tenaciously would have the highest view of prayer at all, of all. After all, if God is truly sovereign, he can do anything within his character, he can change any heart, he can supply any need, he can alter the weather, he can change the course of history, and he has done all of these things in answer to prayer. Anybody with the attitude, well, I'm not going to pray zealously because it might be against God's eternal decree, completely misunderstands God's sovereignty. (laughs) Never forget this, my friends. We pray according to the revealed will of God and the word of God, not in harmony with what we assume is the secret decretal will of God that's not revealed. Now, this is one you might want to write down or emblazon it somewhere. We always operate in terms of revelation, not in terms of speculation. We always operate in terms of revelation, not in terms of speculation. And God has clearly revealed that his people should pray. And if they pray in faith, they can generally expect God to answer. As Grant Osborne once said, I love this expression, God is sovereign and he can say no to our prayers but we should not expect God to reject the prayers of his people. In other words, answered prayer is the default, and unanswered prayer is the exception. And if we disagree with that, I simply would offer as evidence um, the Bible. The Bible again and again exhorts us to persevere in prayer. And it's often God's plan to answer our prayer precisely after we relentlessly seek his throne for a long, long time. Sometimes after many, many years. And sometimes God answers our prayers even after our death. We die, but our prayers do not die. So if you're praying today for a sincere need and God hasn't answered, keep praying. Don't faint. Don't lose hope. God is sometimes slow, but he is never late. Finally, to live in an atmosphere of prayer is to live in persistent expectation of what God is going to do. Why? Because prayer is faith's most obvious manifestation. If we have faith in God, we're constantly asking him to fulfill his promises. If we lack faith, our prayer will be weak. 
non-existent because it requires faith to truly pray. People weak in faith are weak in prayer. I mean, you do know that, right? That's fairly obvious. But not just faith. True prayer also requires expectation. We read in Hebrews 11 that he who comes to God must believe that he is, that he exists. I mean, that's obvious enough. But the writer doesn't stop there. We also must believe that he rewards those who diligently seek him. Now think for a minute about that assertion. That's filled, pregnant with meaning. In order to find God, we must simply believe that he exists. The devils believe and quake, James tells us. Well, the devils certainly don't want to seek God for answers to prayer, since their cause is at war with his. But God's people don't simply believe in God. We must believe that God will reward those who seek after him. In other words, we must believe that God is the kind of God who does good things to those who seek him. Let me state it simply. We don't have faith in just any God, but in the benevolent God of the Bible who delights to answer prayer. That's, that is the God that we believe in. And if we don't believe in that God, we're not believing in the right God. Again and again, God ties prayer to faith and expectation. If we pray in faith, we will generally receive what we're praying for. If we pray with unbelieving hearts, James tells us we can expect nothing from the Lord. If you can't pray trusting God to answer, quit praying. You're wasting your time. Or cry out to God for greater faith and expectation. I begin my prayers just about every morning and say, Lord, please, before anything else, increase my faith. Why would I want to go to pray if I don't have faith? Lord, please increase my faith. God delights in expectant prayers because he loves for his children to rely on him. Prayer is perhaps the most obvious denial of self-sufficiency possible. (laughs) When we pray, we're saying we can't go it alone. We need God. Every father delights when his children depend on him. God is our gracious heavenly father, and he delights as no earthly father can in his children who come in utter dependence on him, utter dependence and expectation. Oh, God, I need you to do this. We desperately need you to do this, and we expect. We don't know how. We don't understand, but we expect that you will do. We're coming in faith. Andrew, I don't know. That's a pretty bold prayer. Yeah, that's kind of what the Bible says. This is why E.W. Tozer once said that faith without expectation is dead. And he also said this. Listen to this powerful quote, particularly one phrase in this quote. We need today a fresh spirit of anticipation that springs out of, not off, of the promises of God. We must, note the phrase, declare war on the mood of non-expectation. Wow, isn't that powerful? And come together with childlike faith. Only then can we know the beauty and wonder of the Lord's presence among us. Why don't you join me today in declaring war on the mood of non-expectation? Yeah, we pray because it's kind of our duty and, you know, we want to be in contact with God at least once or twice a day. 
Uh, you expect God's going to answer? Well, he never seems to, but I mean, we probably sh- should still pray. Friends, that's not biblical praying. <laughs> when you pray, you pray in faith, expecting God to do what you prayed. When we pray in expectation, we're really saying we trust the promise of God, promises of God. Incidentally, this is why you should be immersing yourself in the Bible. If you read the Bible extensively, you'll constantly encounter God's promises, which you can intelligently claim. The most effective prayers are those that claim the promises of God. But you need to know what they are, and you're not going to know what they are unless you read them. Oh, a beautiful example of this is the life of Gideon in Judges 6. The Jews were suffering under the dominance of the Midianites due to their sin, and Gideon was hiding out while threshing wheat so he could avoid the plundering Midianites. He would thresh the wheat, and if they could find him, they'd steal it all. So he was hiding while he was threshing the wheat. And the angel of the Lord, probably the Son of God himself, pre-incarnate manifestation, the angel of the Lord came to Gideon and saluted him with these words, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Now, I'm sure about this time, Gideon looked around to see who the Lord was talking to. In case you hadn't noticed, Lord, I'm hiding out here. Not much valor going on around here. And then Gideon asked an interesting question. One of the most powerful questions in the Bible, in my view. Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all of this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hand of the Midianites. Gideon, you see, had been reading his Bible. He was well aware that God had made promises to bless his people Israel and was convinced that God wasn't fulfilling those promises. Now, note carefully, the angel did not reprimand Gideon for this bold complaint. (laughs) The angel didn't say, Gideon, keep your mouth shut. How dare you question God and his sovereignty? No, God wasn't angry. The angel wasn't angry. Why? Because Gideon's entire complaint was based on the fact that he trusted God's promises. When we're on our knees before God, crying out, and yes, sometimes complaining that he's not fulfilling his word to us as he promised he would, we are just demonstrating our faith. Now, we might be misunderstanding God, and we probably are, but at least we're trusting his word. So in prayer, never be timid. Never be ashamed to remind God of his promises. Never be too shy to say to God, but God, you promised You promised. Fulfill your promises. This demonstrates faith and expectation. In conclusion, the volume of God's answer to our prayer often corresponds to the faith and expectation of the prayer. If we pray big, bold prayers, God answers bigly. If we pray small, shriveled, anorexic, faithless prayers, Oh, God, if you please, we know you probably aren't going to do this, but please, somehow, if you could find it in your heart, perhaps at some point, somewhere, at some time, please. 
And often when this happens, God answers in small anorexic ways, if at all. You say, well, I'm not sure about that. Yeah, yeah, but I am. According to your faith, so be it to you, Scripture says. So I would encourage you today to quit praying little, measly, anorexic prayers as though God is a weakling or he doesn't care. This really is a form of borderline blasphemy under the guise of high-sounding piety. So pray big and expect big. God does great things for his people if they cry out to him to do great things and expect that he will do great things. Determined from this day forward to live always in an atmosphere of prayer. Father, I pray that you would imbue and endue this church as never before with a mighty, onrushing spirit of prayer. Every single believer here, from the youngest to the oldest, every single one, I'm trusting, oh God, that I'm going to hear about it and you're going to do it and everyone here will experience experience it and there will be a testimony that you have answered that prayer. We're expecting it, God, because we're praying in faith. We pray it, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, Lord, and King. Amen. Amen. Appropriate time for all of the prayer teams to come.